0: Uh, final official Sunday in um, our stewardship campaign. We do sort of three of those talking about what stewardship is and what it means and this idea of what we can do together, uh, surpassing by far what any of us could do alone and recognizing ourselves as not only integral to that, but having a calling within that. So I encourage us to just rejoice and be glad. We are invited into a church, into a way of living, into a way of being that literally helps bring the world as it should be to life. There's just nothing better than that, right? So we have been moving through our Um, parables, and this is yet another parable, and this is one of the three, uh, just one after the other that we've been telling over these three Sundays, and I just want to pull out a few of the words to help us hear this parable even more clearly, and that is, again, the kingdom of heaven, Matthew writes, is like a net that people threw into the lake and gathered all kinds of fish. And when the net was full, they pull it to shore. And this is a kind of a drag net. This is the wrong kind of net we're seeing here, where they would kind of drag it to shore and they would literally sort of capture everything, scoop everything up once they started that net moving. And they would sit down and they would sort the fish into containers, and they would sort out the good fish, but the bad fish. They would throw away. So in English we use the word "bad" here, but the English, the Greek word for bad is "kakos," and that's not this word. This word means rotten or putrid, and in the Judean cultural landscape, it meant unclean. So just like you wouldn't eat a um, moldy piece of bread, or by the cultural laws, you wouldn't eat something that didn't have that. Uh, that didn't have scales. i trying to think, I think the eels were unclean. Actually, I have to look up which seafood, but certainly the, the shrimp, don't eat that. Don't eat that? This idea of what it takes to together create a healthy society and things that are unclean. So this is really about what is has been decided is not part of the well-being of society, and that goes. Um, The idea, too, of this dragnet and the fish is very biblical, and we hear it in the Old Testament, this idea that we hear echoed in the New Testament when you say you don't know the time or the hour, right? The Christians used that phrase. But there was this understanding that, that things just happened in life, and you never knew when that net might be coming, dragging ashore, and that you might be caught up in it. And if you weren't paying attention, it could catch you up before you decided to change your ways and do good. And so this is a warning to those who are not paying attention, who are caught up in the everyday meannesses of the world, to reorient and remember that that net is coming and God is the owner of it. God brings that net. then the angels will go out the story tells us and separate the evil people from the righteous people and here we really do get a word like bad we get the word poneros which means evil the evil one this is not a good word these are folks who are on purpose sowing death and destruction instead of life And they will throw the evil ones into the burning furnace. Now there's a lovely image for you. And there will be weeping and grinding of teeth. So after the monks all decided there was a literal hell, everybody reads these particular phrases as being hell and hellfire and damnation. They appear only in Matthew, with one exception in Luke. And what this really means is Anguish. This is anguish. It can be used in different contexts. It can mean deep regret of somebody who has been harmed or hurt, right? It doesn't necessarily mean a wicked person who's been cast in hell. And it's important to remember that, that hurt and harm comes from doing wrong, that there is anguish on the behalf of the doers of harm and anguish on behalf of the receivers of harm. And this is not the world that God is calling us to bring into being. Have you understood all these things Jesus asks? Why does he always ask that question? Do any of us ever understand? You know, the disciples say to him, yes, I think lying is a sin could get you put in the, in the bad fish category. It's hard to know what Jesus is talking about. It's hard to know in ancient Judea what Jesus is talking about, let alone here in America so much farther from that place. But we are committed to try to suss it out, right? There's one more word that I want to sort of bring attention to here. And that's the word for treasure. And we talked about this a little bit last week, that in English, the word treasure is not separated from something you treasured, like um, your child, from a treasure for the pirates. (laughs) It's the same word, right? So it can mean ill-gotten gains. It can mean you've stolen them and you feel entitled to them. And it can mean that um, that you just truly love it. So in Greek, they, they have a distinction between those two words. There's a word for spoils. Treasures that are spoils. This is not that word. This is the word for barn or storehouse. So when the English says, translators here put treasure chest, they have gone entirely in the wrong direction. Does that call up a pirate or what? So that to really read, read, always when you read the Bible, make the assumption that God is good because some of the translations won't lead you there. Right? Always the assumption that God is good. So chest is utterly wrong. The barn or the storehouse is full of treasure, full of goodness, full of the, of the resources of well-being that are God-given. In our stewardship parable, the farmer who is good at farming and husbandry and the ground has loved him and given him its produce we are told that for this man, despite how comfortable and sweet this life is, where he's he's able to bring forth the grapes and the weed and make the bread, that um that with that with being the agency of God, then sweeter than that, better still, is life itself, and and God gives the farmer the agency here. The Bible says the man went out found the treasure. That all of us have the agency. We don't have to wait for God to to, press that button inside us that we are suddenly worthy or suddenly capable of finding the treasure that is better than life itself. But that all of us have the agency and the ability to find that. Explode our understanding of what is possible in the world. So, one of the things that happens in this parable uh, in the three before it is that they are in Galilee talking to the crowds, the oxlos, the riffraff, and then they'll scurry back into Peter's house in Capernaum and they'll talk together, just just the disciples and the core followers in Jesus. And Jesus will ask them these questions of, do you get it, do you understand, and he'll tell these extra parables to try to clarify the parable. There's nothing more clarifying than a parable to clarify a parable, don't you think? (laughs) Really just not gonna get us anywhere. Um, But this is that moment where they kind of return to sanctuary, return to that inner place together where they can kind of hash this out. Have you ever been on a mission trip and you go out and you do the work, but the most sacred important time is that time when you come back afterwards and you return to that sanctuary and you share the stories of what did that mean to you? Where did you see God today? That's one of the things that uh, can be so hard when you do, um, especially like social justice work or anything like that, right? It's like you go out there and you put yourself out there and you work really hard and are you surrounded by a loving church family who helps you process that heavy load that you carry when you interact all the time with folks who are needy or, or need your caring? Where, where's that moment where you get to return to sanctuary and be healed and refilled so that you can go back out again and give of yourself again in the world? So I see this as kind of those moments in and out. So mission is a few things. This Charge Conference was this last Monday, and one of the things we did in Charge Conference is we voted to adopt a new mission statement. Now, these things aren't set in iron. If this is the first time you're seeing it and you decide you can't stand it at all, it's the most horrible mission statement you've ever seen. We, there will be new charge conferences, so we can always change it, but you've got to start somewhere. And I felt really, really good about the process that was undertaken by the uh, strategic board to try to kind of figure out, what, where do we think our beginning place is with this? What do you, how would we name who we are? And so our values here, I'm going to start with those just because I'm going to get them off our list. Our understanding of our values as a congregation are that we are building and maintaining relationships is a core value for us. Faith in action is a core value for us. Inclusion, respect for each individual, and responsible stewardship. These were things that were identified as core values. So this is a little easier to read now, a little bit less march of the letters, one after the other. And I'm going to read the, the mission statement at the top, who we are. We are a Christian family of faith, sharing the grace and love of God with all people. There's a lot left out, right? You could probably like write another paragraph. Uh, if you did that, you'd have to edit it all out in order to get that there. So there's a lot of things packed into that small small sentence. And then our vision statement sort of what does that mean in the world? What does that mean? We commit our hands and hearts to actively connect to God and transform our community and the world by welcoming all to share in meaningful worship, educational experiences and outreach. So this does in a lot of ways kind of name us, right? We know that these are things we really care about. We really care about our Christian family, that sanctuary, the music, right? That we retreat into Peter's house together with our followers and we and we unpack. What does this mean? what What we're doing in the world, now we get to come back and learn more deeply and learn to love each other more deeply. And then educational experiences, right? To build disciples. If you don't if you don't on purpose create educational experiences, you simply will lose disciples. And that can, be, that can be a path. Some people, they flare up and they do something marvelous and then it flares down again. Churches are usually intended to be sustaining. So it's a process of education all the time to re-infuse discipleship, to draw people into the goodness that is done and help teach them about the well-being of the world. And then the last thing is outreach. How do we live our faith? How will they know we are Christian? How do we see ourselves as engaging in the well-being of the world right now? How, how does that look? And for many of us, that word outreach, in our church, immediately we think of our Tuesday dinners where so many are fed. I, I estimated that since it's been here... In the, uh, in the Methodist Church, we've served probably around 100,000 meals. I mean, that's like staggering and amazing. And many, many folks see the deep value of this ministry, and all of us should be asking how do we make this really bloom? how do we see this as our hands of faith? Or do we engage in other things in the community that become our hands of faith, like people who do the Walker School uh, outreach and a number of the other outreaches that our church is involved in? Okay, I'd like us to take just a minute, and I want us to just let this soak in. It's going to be tempting because we are Western rationalists. We are taught the hermeneutic of suspicion to sit above a text and gaze down at it with our glasses or our monocle. And we can be above it and superior to it, and we can criticize it. Oh, look, they put a comma there. Terrible. Right? That's not what we want to do here. This is about wanting to allow it to form us. Allow it to work in us. This line of text. What can it mean in your life and in the life of the church? So we're just gonna, gonna, I'm gonna read it out, and then we're gonna just be silent for a minute, and just let it soak in. We are a Christian family of faith, sharing the grace and love of God with all the world. I want you to take just a minute and share with your neighbor what, what, what are you thinking of in that moment or what did you feel in that moment that we sat together? We are a Christian family of faith sharing the grace and love of God with all people. Just turn to your neighbor. Where, where is this for you? What do you notice? We could talk about that a lot longer, couldn't we? Who who experienced that the more you talked about it and sort of reflected on it, the deeper it got? Anybody experienced that? That It just got deeper the more you looked at it. And that those little tiny, that small sentence actually carries a lot of things. Um, this idea, too, that sharing the grace and love of God with all people, one of the things that Captured me in the when we first sort of sat with this was that I felt this sort of deep call to discipleship in my own heart, right? Like, I, I love holiness work where you, you know you try to li- literally inhabit that good presence in your body, and when you share the grace and love of God. You know, it's not like cutting, well, actually, cutting a piece of cake and sharing it can kind of be like that, sort of like that hospitality of joy. But, you know, if you, if you shove it in their face, it's not quite the same thing. We can't all have great examples for these things. Anyway, I, I have, feel a lot of joy around having a mission statement together. Because one of the risks in church family life is people can have lots of different ideas about what church life should or could be. And if you're not careful, those things can start to interface in a conflicted way. And when you share together a vision for what we're doing together, then even if your partner is annoying, you're moving ahead to something that you know is good. That you know is good. So that's our vision statement, and we talked a little bit about that as well. I just want to uh, close uh, with reading the Ezekiel, a little bit of the Ezekiel again, and uh, to uh, recognize that as our stewardship comes to a close officially, if you can bring bring your pledges in, that we will have these lovely little treasures as a thank you. And I have a cold, so I'm just going to hold it. I'm not going to shake hands today so you can come by and officially grab one. And there will be another couple of treasure chests full of riches, delicious chocolate, um, in, the, uh, in the narthex after the service. So ye who have children, be warned. Their pockets might get full. And this is what Ezekiel shares with us. That he... They, he was in a vision and seeing God and God brought him back to the temple's entrance and he says, I noticed that the water was flowing toward the east and it had become a river I couldn't cross. And the water was so high and too high to cross and God said to me, human one, do you see? That's Just like Jesus' question, did you understand? Like, well, maybe Then God led me back to the edge of the river, and when I went back, I saw very many trees on both banks of the river. And God said to me, Wherever the river flows, every living thing that moves will thrive. There will be great schools of fish because when the waters enter the sea, it will be fresh. Wherever the river flows, everything will live What does that say to us on every level? Physically, the true reality that if the water flows in our great creation out of our love of God, that we have a beautiful earth where we really can pay attention to the commandment to go forth and multiply. And not just for us, but for the fishes. But also spiritually and as a church. I'm gonna read this one more time. Where the river flows... There is life. The gift of life is better than anything we can imagine. And it is within our grasp to share in the giving of it. Praise be to God.